You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. For this year's reflection of special moments on Max's Island, we are highlighting the important values we follow on the island. So, to begin this year, we'll feature some stories from last year, where visitors to Max's Island truly reflected one of these values. In this first bonus episode, we will hear stories that embrace the value, believe in everyone. We know the world is full of individual personalities who add to the richness of our relationships and connection. This may be you as an individual with a strong sense of self-actualization or just the way you allow others to be themselves. Chris Singleton has always had those who believed in him, and many of these people have been his mentors, offering their own reflections on what success looks like. An unfortunate accident and a challenging business situation that followed allowed Chris to trust the value to believe in everyone. A number of sort of times when I've taking different tacks and things have happened but probably the one that as we were discussing earlier comes to mind most was one that sort of pretty well changed how I thought about a lot of things um, and particularly the way you run it like a small enterprise which, which is quite at the time counterintuitive to how most people did things. Um, so was that through a chance meeting of somebody or a revelation in running a business or, or what uh, was it? A, a chance meeting with a farmer in a troopie that came through an intersection. <laughs> oh, and collected you? <laughs> and collected me, yeah. So why was that such a pivotal moment where you had the opportunity to change the way you thought about things around business? Uh, and, and as I... I'll declare to our listeners on Max's Island, I know your background around entrepreneurship and starting things and and being a founder, um, that's pretty much your life. So I'm interested to know where some of the, your thoughts and philosophies might have changed, might have um, matured because of this event. Yeah, so um, old mate sort of Friday afternoon, I had a car that I'd bought to do Target Tasmania in, and uh, for once on a Friday afternoon I didn't have a beer, and had to go and check some stuff um, at a printer, and just trundling along and this guy sort of came through a, a, a giveaway sign, 
clipped the back of the car, spun the car around, and it sort of just went up onto um, a park, which in all events would be a fairly sort of innocuous series of circumstances, and you'd just be a bit peeved that your car got dented. But the nature of this, it was a, an old fiberglass car, um, and fiberglass is pretty ratty after 50 years, and the green logs, treated pine logs that they have around a park, which have just got a little strap over the top of them, um, the car sort of hit one of these fences at a particular angle and the log just came straight through the door of the car and hit my right ankle, sort of blew that apart, spun my, my, I think it's tibia and fibula around and hit, hit my knee and then took the back of my left calf off. And so the net result of all that is that I wasn't able to... I had to have some surgery in bits and pieces and I wasn't able to work and we had an insurance policy in a business, I think we had eight or nine people, maybe more actually, with contract, probably 12 working for us at the time. And I was just your typical small businessman, as you would know at the time, and sort of doing everything. You do the accounts, you do the client service, you do the creative. You business development. Business development, yeah. you do the production managing, debt chasing, the whole nine yards. And... It was kind of like, well, God, what's going to happen now? And then my accountant at the time said, well, basically there's two avenues. One, you've obviously got, it's clearly not your fault. So you've got the Motor Vehicle Insurance Trust, which will, um, any, anything you're out of pocket, um, they'll pick up. And second, you've got an insurance policy around uh, continuity and key man and stuff like that. So with those two things, you'll be completely set. So, so key man insurance back in those days was pretty fashionable, wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was something that was... Um, Pretty popular for small businessmen. Yeah, and being sort of like, I think it was about 31, 32 years, like 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Um, so you just really, I'll never claim on this thing. And then she, she was great. And, um, you know, she's a family friend, went to school with my mum. And she just said, look, just go and hire whoever you need to hire to keep the business going. So we went straight out to the market and got a production manager we got a salesperson, we got an accounts person, and we got some somebody in creative actually. So we basically got four people on to do it. So I was sort of completely out of the business for a good eight to twelve weeks, and then sort of came back in. So the key man insurance to hire those people that would have been only for a period of time, though. Um, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember the details yeah. now. But there's two bits to it because it was really if I could demonstrate that we were running the business at a loss because I wasn't there too. So it was also how much out of pocket I personally was going to be. Um, And the NVIT covered that. And luckily we had a very, and we're talking about the early 90s here, a very automated business. Like we were one of the first places to, um, we bought an Apple Lisa in 85 or 86 and we had a spreadsheet on it and we did all our accounts as you you probably remember. So we, we had everything, like nothing escaped us and we knew what all of our, jobs would cost and everything else. So it was quite easy to sort of demonstrate that. Yeah, so we got these people in and then I sort of probably five, six months, I suppose, before I was back into the business really full-time and had to have, you know, rehab and stuff like that. And my head just wasn't in the space for it. And it was kind of interesting, like two things go through your head. Well, you know, they're doing a good job and you really don't want to sack them because, you know, you sort of get to know them. Mm -hmm. And then you still look at the numbers and you go, you know what, business actually making a pretty good quid without me. In fact, it's probably run the best it's ever... <laughs> best it's ever run. And I remember thing, there's a, there's a really early business coaching crowd called... I think it was called Sherlaw's. 
And their whole premise was, and I remember reading this article, and it was in BRW, I think, where they started this business off with the premise that people start businesses because they see a gap in the market. Like They're generally working for somebody and they see where something's going wrong or not being done correctly, business processes, naff, and they should do this, or if you bought this piece of machinery, you'd do that, or, hey, I can see the market's heading there. And they say to their, you know, push it up, and the bosses aren't interested in it, they don't want to spend the money in it, all the usual palaver um, that happens in small business. And so what happens? They just piss off and start their own business, and next minute, you know, they're successful. Uh, roll on 10, 15 years, and it's a bit like that uh, cat's in the cradle. You know, it's... it's same thing happens it's, to them. It's, it's, the same, it's the same thing. It's, you know, Cat Stevens sort of song, yeah. but in business. And so the guys from the guys from Sherlaw sort of recognise this. So part of their whole business coaching was around not only just succession planning, but succession planning not in the sense that most people know it, but succession planning is actually bringing people up through the business. And then so... A, you're not losing good talent, and B, then you get to, to spend time just thinking about where the business should be going, not just bogged down in the frigging trenches, which is what happens to everybody running a small gig, even a medium-sized gig. And so I sort of read that article, and it's sort of like, you know what, this is actually, I'm, I'm living this. So, yeah, we didn't, we just left them there, and then I just really concentrated then on just developing relationships, moving the business in different directions. It's, got much more into business process engineering and you know um, business improvement with um, stuff and yeah and so out of that sort of came to sort of which we've applied for everything else we've ever done going from there is always have effectively have your businesses deal ready so if somebody comes in and um, and ultimately that's what helped to sell that business because you can just sit there and go this is what it makes this is how it runs and it doesn't need me so this whole concept of earnouts and that that Often when people sell businesses, I just don't subscribe to. It's kind of like, mate, you want to buy my business because of X, Y, and Z, and therefore I'm selling it to you on that premise, and then um, I'm not going to let the door hit me on the butt on the way out. You're welcome to ring me up at any time, but in my opinion, you know, I've said it time and time again, you sell a business, there's an earn out, the new owners dabble. The reason why they bought the business basically gets lost in the process. And then next minute, it's, you know, not what it was. And then you're arguing about, well, the earn out and all the rest of it. So, yeah, so I learned basically very focused on business process within your business and focused on all of the back office stuff. So you have got really good management accounting, even in a small business, and you can, I mean, it's easier now, obviously, with zero and things like that, but back in the day it wasn't. Um, so you can sit there and show somebody how it works, how it runs, you can run under management and you also don't have to spend any time things getting up to speed because um, Nicholas Moore from Macquarie Bank's great line was speed or lack thereof kills deals. Mm. So if somebody wants, you know, the, what's Ronnie Wise says, the chooks are feeding. Feed them. Feed them. When you did come back and, and you know, you, you did say that you didn't immerse yourself quite the same way as before, but... Was there any sense of, well, I'm not sure of my value here and, and did that allow you to perhaps then think a bit more progressively by looking at other business opportunities? I think it's really hard not to just dive in and 
muck up what somebody's actually mm. doing. Like, I've already done it this way, you've done it that way. So that probably contributed to an attitude I have now um, in that everybody has different ways of doing things and you've got to be really respectful of that and that's really hard because some people um, go, you're not doing it like this. And really, at the end of the day, as long as the job gets done, it's within budget or within spec or within quality control or whatever, just wear it. And that, that, that was actually a, a lesson I learned from my grandfather, who's an incredible West Australian industrialist. And it's non-negotiable. He had to work and work in our factories and had this new process and he gave it to this bloke. And I remember driving home with my grandfather and he goes, I was like, why do you give it to him? Because the closer my grandfather was to my father. Um, why do you give it to him? He goes, because he's the laziest bloke in the joint, but he's smart. And bear in mind, you know, I was about 10 when this was going, so yep. it's bleeding obvious now. He goes... Because So what he's going to do, he's going to do it as fast as he possibly can, but he's also going to do it at a quality that I'm not going to crawl up him for it. And then he said... Because he doesn't that, want to do it again. He doesn't want to do it again. So therefore, and that's pretty well going to be the quality that the, the, the customer is going to accept. So, you know, that's, a bit of, that's about making a, a process super profitable. And then that sort of went on to this thing about, you know, well, when you're older, you'll do economics and it'll be about supply and demand. And he goes, I've got this theory, it's not supply and demand, it's about greed and laziness. People basically want you know, as much as they possibly can for as little, little as they, they can, can possibly do. So, you see, when you get your head around supply and demand, better still greed and laziness, um, then middle wrap. So all, all those little life lessons are sort of just like plugged away as like little building stones. Do you think those principles still work now? And why? Yeah, young people are way smart. Like, we've always in every business we've ever done gone out of our way to hire young people but also not push old farts like me out and it's really just I think putting an environment in where you're not lecturing about stuff you're basically just helping them with a toolkit to get where you got to because I mean this you know our the mutual boss that we both had in gym the amount of time and effort over the years that people have spent with me and you know like Laurie Connell and stuff like that. Like, I was just a you know, mid-twenties idiot and you've got these you know, four-on-the-floor entrepreneurs, as they were known at the time, actually spending time with me, helping me build a business. So I don't think anything's changed. I, I think that every generation gets smarter, that's just a fact. Um, and I think it's just a matter of those things, just remembering pragmatism. Because I do think pragmatism is one of the... the um, the casualties of what we live in today. To trust yourself to leave behind a successful corporate job of many years and follow a feeling about a passion you have is unbelievably courageous and requires incredible commitment. Ruchi Korshal is on a self-belief discovery journey as she leaves behind a professional career in finance to follow her dream and run her business in a spice. She wants everyone to discover their inner spice. I've had a few pivotal moments, but there's one recent one which I feel has had a bit of a ripple effect on my life. I feel I got to a point in my life where I realized I was getting older. <laughs> And I'd always had something inside me which felt like there was so much more I should be doing with myself. 
And for a bit of background, I had always worked in a corporate professional role for 20 plus years. And for a long time in that period, I felt like it just wasn't for me. Something just didn't sit right. And I knew I had gone down that career path more for, I guess, cultural reasons um, and family reasons. It gave me a lot of opportunities, but kind of realized as I, would get, as I was getting older, and if I don't do the things that actually mean something to me, I'll just never know if I could ever do anything else. And so I guess the pivotal moment for me was bringing the courage to actually leave my full-time career. I guess I never had the courage to do it. I don't think anybody ever thought I would actually do it. Um, <laughs> I had always talked about starting up my own business and that business would be something to do with the food or hospitality industry. That's something that I've always, always loved. And I just didn't know what it would be, but it was that last five years where it was really just playing on my mind. I was talking about it a lot more. I'd even sat down and started putting things together for it. And making that decision to leave was really, really tough. I was with my um, partner then, and he had started his business as well. And we sat down and he knew how much I had wanted to leave my job for a long time. And it was getting to a point where it was mentally, emotionally draining for me. Um, that last few years of being where I was, was really just took a toll. And I realized I can't keep living like this. I can't keep doing this because I'm not being true to myself. And it's affecting not just me, but all the relationships around me. So I decided it's a bit like ripping off a Band-Aid, I guess. I just thought, I have to do it now. If I don't do it, I will never know, and I won't do it. So after discussing it with my partner as well, because um, he was really supportive, and we thought about, you know, coming from a finance background, I would, I'm always quite sensible. So we sat down and we thought about it, and we thought, can this work? Let's make this work. And so that's when I decided to let my boss know that I was leaving, and I actually gave them about four or five months' notice said, look, this is, I, I want to help out because I had been with them for seven years and just thought this is what I want to do. But um, I'll stick around for the next five, six months or so, help out, make sure there's a good transition for my role. And, um, and I remember that feeling once I spoke to him and told him I was leaving. It was, that was when it really sunk in that I'm doing this. And I just remember standing there on the Monday morning and I was jumping, like I was I was actually just jumping and excited and saying to my husband, oh my God, I'm getting up. And I don't, it, that feeling of waking up, because every time I went to work, I would wake up with a feeling of dread and just not, not happy. Whereas I remember that day waking up feeling, oh my gosh, I don't have to go into the office. <laughs> and it was oh, just this feeling of freedom and relief. And I think that that lasted for a few days. Then I realized, okay, now I have to, like, have to do something. Back. Yeah, now <laughs> I have to really just focus on what I want to do and what I believe in and make something work where I can do what I love, but also package it into a business where I'm living a life that I'm I'm happy with. 
So the important part of the story for me is you've come from a corporate world, finance, very structured, very predictable, <laughs> predictable, very well known, very under, very well understood. Now you're following a passion into the food industry. How different was it and what was it? How different was it? That's a very open-ended question because there's so much that was different about it. I had to, and I still am, I'm learning a lot about business development, marketing, how to get myself out there, my profile, networking, meeting people, communicating. You know, when I was working, it was, I would go into the office, I would sit in my office, close the door, just get on with my day and and that would be it. And I had no experience in getting out there and meeting people. I didn't really have to do it. You know, it was very few and far between where I would have where I would have to go to any networking events. And I'm quite a introverted person. It's not something that comes to me naturally. And so I had to really start pushing myself out of my comfort zone. And I am I keep pushing myself out of my comfort zone. I'm really understanding all these fears and anxieties I never thought I actually had. You know, I I thought I was quite a even my husband said, you know, when he met me and I was working in in that finance field, I was this confident person. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I wanted. Now I keep questioning myself. I question a lot of what I do. I my, I find my decision making is not as it used to be. Um, it takes me a long time to make even some of the simplest of decisions, but I second guess myself a lot more. And I think it's just been such a big learning curve for me doing something that I am not familiar with at all and trying to learn a whole new industry, learn new skills, but also learn so much more about myself, which I never really, I guess, got the opportunity to learn about myself. But I'm realizing more about myself every day, every day and how I handle situations and how I just have to feel into the fear of things do it anyway. And that's the sort of attitude that I'm trying to take now is it's okay to fear something, but if you can do it and just get over that hurdle, it is so rewarding. And, you know, like speaking in public, I've been doing something I've never had to do. It's not something I've ever wanted to do, but I'm doing it a lot more. Um, I run classes now, so I have to present, Um, but I love it. I actually want to do it. Because I really, when I get into my flow state, I just, and I'm talking about the things I love, that's when it hits me that, okay, I'm now at that moment where I'm realizing that this is what it feels like to do something that you actually enjoy. So tell us about what you love. Tell us about the business and how it's progressed over the last three years, some of the highs and lows. So my business is called Inner Spice and it's all about connecting with your inner spice. And the reason why I started this business is I've always felt that food connects us all globally and underpinning that is spices. They're at the forefront of all the foods that we eat. Through the spice trade, there was a lot of cross-cultural influences which have impacted what 
we eat today, but we don't realize it until we become aware of it and more understanding of it. And I feel once we do that, we start appreciating different cultures in a whole different way. And what I love is I love being able to share stories about spices and not just the history and the cultural parts, but how we can be using them better in our foods, because ultimately for using them better in our foods, we're living a healthier, more sustainable lifestyle. And so that's where the idea and the concept came from with Inner Spice. And when I started the business, I was actually making granola, so spiced granola. It was something I had been making at home and I thought, why not go with that? It was a good place to start. It was a product. And I felt at the time that might be a great place to start the business. And it was a lot of fun. I was going to markets, selling my granolas at farmer's markets. I got it into some stores as well. So like good grocers and a few gourmet boutique uh, supermarkets. And then during that, I was also running private dining events. So the private dining events was where I was able to really share the stories about the spices and the foods we eat, but also be able to cook and prepare meals for either team building events or private events at people's homes, where that's the ultimate place where you come together with your family or your friends and you connect and you feast over food. And I just love that concept. And during that point in that first year, I realized I really love the presenting part and the sharing stories part about spices. And I felt the granola just wasn't fitting in with where I wanted to take the business. And if I wanted to grow that product side of the business, I would have to become a production manufacturing business. And it just wasn't in line with what I love and what I was wanting to present and showcase about the business. So a year and a half ago, I stopped the granolas completely and transitioned to not private dining because I found that running those on your own, so cooking and presenting, wasn't the ideal business model. And so I changed that and I pivoted to doing spice workshops and spice masterclasses, which were shorter. It was more focused on the tools and the techniques for using spices across culinary dishes for health benefits and also the stories behind the spices and the connection with culture. And so that's what I do now is I run my spice classes as corporate classes and private classes. And with that, instead of granola, I just have a complementing product, which is a spice box. So they're these traditional wooden spice boxes that are made in India for storing spices. And I feel that fits into the classes really, really well and gives customers and clients a way to learn more about spices and the opportunity to feel like you know, they're using some traditional methods when they're cooking. To believe in everyone, you need to really believe in yourself, who you are, what you trust, and what you want to do. Beck Bowman has a refreshing approach to extracting the best out of life through the pursuit of creative things. 
This has become layered with the richness of her worldly lived experiences and the realization that she is good at it. Being an acknowledged radio announcer is just one of her beliefs. These days, I am a radio presenter, uh, organiser, a MC, panel facilitator and writer who, you know, does a little few shifts of nursing here and there to earn some money. So um, the point in time when you made a decision to follow that path, how recent was that? And what you know, did you do? And what was the pivotal point where that that occurred? I think that I'd always, I always knew when I, so my first degree was in nursing, and I think I always knew when I started nursing that I was, I was not going, it was not going to be a rest of my life thing. So some people go, some people, you know, know that they're they're going to follow this career path. I was very kind of, I grew up very working class and very practical and pragmatic and even though I always loved to read I um I knew I was going to need money so I always had it in the back of my head that I would not be nursing forever but I didn't really put a time time limit on that I didn't really kind of have any goals that or, or clear goals that I was working towards in terms of like okay, I'm going to do this for this long and I'm going to make this much money and and have this and this and this set up and then I'm going to, like, pursue um, my other dreams. But at the same time, I was making a lot of decisions that would set me up for the possibility of that happening and the possibility of not having to rely on a full-time kind of professional income to, to be able to pursue things that I want to do. It was really, I think, it, you know, like the people, like we say, oh, it was really organic. And I guess it was really organic in that things shifted uh, without me even kind of realising it. And then one day I just kind of thought, you know what, my caregiving days are coming to an end. <laughs> like I just felt... Very clearly felt felt it in my bones that my days of of being a caregiver were li- very limited, very limited. <laughs> Do you think that was something that um, was a two sided coin? One that you felt that, and it can be challenging. And I, I know a lot of people who are in the caregiving sector, and and it can wear you out being the one that provides support to others all the time. Now, some people have the disposition to do it. Others, it does burn you out. So the flip side of that coin is when you came to that realisation, was it also at the same time you perhaps realised that actually you wanted to spend some more time doing things for yourself? No, because I'd always been, like I'd always been a person who, craved and 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 pursued adventure. So, you know, I remember reading there's this quote that really changed and really impacted me from the um, diarist or the journalist, she's not a journalist, she's a, she's a keeper of a journal, May Sarton, she's a poet as well. And to kind of paraphrase it, I'm sure she said something like, experience is the fuel, let me burn it up as I go along so that at the end of 
at the end of it, nothing is left unused and every part of me is consumed by the flames. And, like, that really guided a lot of my decisions, right? So not only was I caregiving and working as a nurse and, like, putting putting a lot of my emotional energy into that, like, uh, you know, um, when I work, I work, you know, like when I give myself to an organisation or to a cause, like I'm very passionate about it. But I was also on the, in my personal life, pursuing adventure and going, you know, I'd go and spend six months backpacking through Europe and following the festival circuit and like, you know, driving across America or volunteering for other organisations and other, doing other things and always had something on I was never never still like I was always doing something you know there was one point where I had two jobs like I had a nighttime job and a daytime job I don't even know how I did that Uh, like honestly I don't know like the very thought of having a nighttime job and a daytime job (laughs) (laughs) at this point in my life is just like I'm like no hard no pass pass Uh, I always I was always doing things for myself that wasn't really the problem, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a problem because I really enjoyed. Like I would never say that I was unhappy because of the work that I was doing, um, but it was definitely it, it was definitely more of a feeling that there was something else waiting for me, and I just had to keep trying different things and pursuing adventures until I found what that was. And did you find it? I mean, yeah, I, I feel like this, I feel like now I'm on a path to being, you know, using all those experiences and using all those kind of skills that I learned in being a nurse and um, all those adventures that I had in the, in the life that I'm living now. And it's funny because it was actually, it was very innocuous. Like I know that um, we were talking uh, talking about these kind of big things that happen to people and they have like such a massive impact that it changes their, their complete, like they just do a complete 150, 150, 180, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it, I can really pinpoint it and, and take it back to the social impact course that we did not from anything we learned <laughs> that kind of blew my mind. It was a group project that I participated in. So, you know, I um, was in the best group of all time um, <laughs> with, the, you know, the best people. Um, we just really enjoyed working together. You know, I was in a group with Katie Stubbley and Travis Thomas and Karen Wellington and Jess Anderson amazing people who you know I adore and um Katie always kind of led the charge on these kind of interesting ways of presenting our assignments and we did a little animated video and I did some voiceover work on it and I remember listening back to that to the to the voiceover for this animation and being like oh god I got a good voice I got a good voice I got a a, that sounds good um (laughs) And from that, it just kind of, it honestly just popped in my head uh, that I would do a radio course. So someone mentioned to me that their friend did a radio presenting course through RTRFM 
Um, next minute, I was, you know, looking up the looking up the next presenter training courses, and I did actually I did have to put it off for a little bit because I was off on another adventure, like just traveling and stuff. Um, and I remember for about six months, I kept kind of emailing back and forth with the ops manager, going, "I'm no, I'm serious about doing this course. Like, I just, I'm abroad. <laughs> I'm abroad. I'm not currently." I'm a summer the- vacation. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, so I eventually did the I eventually did the presenters course and did about three overnight shows um before I went okay I need to get out of this overnight business and started doing the hip-hop show and then in I think 2016 I started doing the art beat show and again I still I still can't tell you why I decided that art beat was where I wanted to be like I can't, I just just was like, do you know what? I'm like, this is a show. This is a show that I want to do. I'm going to do that show. At any of those stages, did you go, wow, I found my place? Or, again, was it something that grew on you? No, because it was at the time, it was just another one of my little, like, little adventures, little things that I was trying. I was just trying, you know, like I just wanted to give it a go, see what would happen. Like I've just never been afraid of giving things a go. And I really was just having a good time. I took it seriously because I believe in like you've got to take the work seriously, don't take yourself seriously, you know, like. But did you get a buzz out of being a presenter? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I loved it. The first time that I, the first time that I had to talk uh, or be live, when I knew people were listening, which is a lot different from overnights when you're like, mm. I was nervous as anything, so nervous, and I really never want to listen to that that ever again. Like I really hope that it's just disappeared. But but yeah, I just I, it took a while to feel comfortable. It, it, like it really did, it still did take a while to be comfortable, even though I knew I enjoyed it, it still took time. And then one day, probably like about a year doing Artbeat, which is a kind of talks and music show that is focused on arts and culture here in, in Bulu, in Perth, probably about a year in, I started feeling really settled and I reckon probably a year after that I started feeling like I knew it all. <laughs> we spoke on the bus on the way home from work he was lost in the details of life each day was a blur oh work play and how how it turned out this way he told me his plan a short-term escape five weeks on the bibbling track go it alone no one to blame if he finished or fell by the Sometimes 
sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky, completely alone, no emails or phone. 